Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can call you Father. Thank you that believers are called your children into your family. Thank you, Lord, for this time where we can listen to your word. I pray, Lord, you would um, speak through me. And I also ask, Holy Spirit, you would transform people's hearts and lives. We all want to be changed, Lord. We're not who we want to be. We want to be closer to you. We want to love you more. We want to obey you um, more and more as well. So, Lord, have your way with us in this time. And thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the gospel. May it become very clear to us today. Jesus, name I pray. Amen. So today is Valentine's Day. Who likes to receive gifts? Raise your hand. Wait, there's some of us who don't like to receive gifts? Well, men, if your wife raised her hand and you don't have a gift for her for Valentine's Day, I suggest you take care of that following the service. Not now, afterwards. So in keeping with this lovely day, I'm going to preach about the gift that Jesus has given to believers, which is his righteousness. This is one of those big words in the Bible that gets used in teaching and preaching and singing, but rarely defined, which means the understanding of this word is many times assumed. As a hint, usually those big words in the Bible directly relate to the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus, God the Son, and what he has done in his perfect life, death, and resurrection through God the Spirit to reconcile sinners to God the Father. I'll say that again. The gospel is the good news of Jesus, God the Son, and what he has done in his perfect life, death, and resurrection through God the Spirit to reconcile sinners to God the Father. We can call ourselves a gospel-centered church, but we must not assume the content of the gospel, nor the response of the gospel, nor the implications of the gospel. In the words of Dr. D.A. Carson, if we assume the gospel, we are only one generation away from denying it. In preparing for this message, I confess that I was initially more prepared to talk about the doctrine of righteousness rather than quote Bible verses relating to righteousness. For a church like ours that value doctrine, this is another danger. The first danger is to assume the gospel. The second danger is to know doctrine but not know where in the Bible you get the doctrine. Knowing that God of the Bible and his word is more important than knowing just doctrine about God. My desire for preaching this topic is for all of us to have a better understanding of righteousness so we can know the gospel more deeply, which would cause us to adore Jesus more abundantly because of what he has done. Since this is a topical sermon, we're going to cover several different Bible passages. Don't feel the need to turn to each one. Just write the reference down and you refer to it later. Uh, if you send me a request, I'll be glad to post the uh, references online on the city. With that in mind, let's define the word righteousness. 
Many Bible scholars would agree that the word righteousness is loaded and dynamic and therefore difficult to summarize. So here's my attempt to summarize it. Righteousness has two aspects, a moral aspect and a relational aspect. The moral angle of righteousness is conforming to God's standards. An example of this is found in Proverbs 11, verse 19. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Notice the parallel. Steadfast in righteousness and pursues evil, and then live based on righteousness and then die because you're pursuing evil. The second aspect of righteousness is the relational angle, which is to be in right relationship with God. To be declared or counted righteousness before God means that we're in a right legal standing with him based on his verdict as judge over everything. The big word to describe this is justification. Being justified or declared righteous is the result of having received the gift righteousness of Jesus. Romans three twenty one and 22. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So not only are there two aspects of righteousness, there are also two types of righteousness. Man's righteousness and God's righteousness. Leads me to my point number two. Why do we need righteousness? We need to be right with God, a.k.a. righteous, because on our own, you and I, along with every single person in this world, we are not right with God. The world is not filled with good and bad people, but rather the world is filled with sinners who need to be rescued by the Savior, Jesus the Christ, the only one who is good. God's glory is the standard. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are guilty before God, but we can be made right with him because of Jesus. Because all have sinned, We are alienated, estranged, separated from God, our creator. And we are sinners in three major ways. The first, by breaking God's law in thought, word, deed, motive, and attitude. That's a lot of different ways to transgress God's law. Have you kept the Ten Commandments? All ten, perfectly, every second of your life, in thought, word, deed, motive, and attitude? No. Let's look at the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Listen up, kids. (laughs) What if I obeyed a certain request from my parents, but my thought and attitude were not honoring to them? I did what I was told, but I was complaining the whole time while I was fulfilling their request. I would be sinning against them and ultimately against God. 
Secondly, we are sinners by nature. Because we are human beings, we all have a sin nature given to us by our first parents, Adam and Eve. In Romans 5, 12 through 22, it talks about how in Adam's one act of sin, all mankind is condemned. In verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Verse 18 and 19. Consequently, just as one trespass, Adam's, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, Jesus, right, going on the cross, resulted in justification, right, being declared righteous, and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, explains that we are sinners by our disobedience and by nature. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's right. That's our lifestyle. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The third way we're sinners is by making anything, good or bad, a higher priority than God. Everyone is made in God's image, Genesis 1, 26-28, so that each one of us was made to reflect him and live for him. Thus, sin can be misdirected worship within our hearts because God is not the focus. This happens when you disobey him, but it can also happen when you replace God with good things as the most important thing to you. You can live a life that is moral and religious without God as the center, and you're worshiping a good thing above God, which makes it a bad thing. This is called idolatry which relates to the first and second commandments of the Ten Commandments. If sin is idolatry on some level, then all sins are in some way breaking at least one of the Ten Commandments. So you could say that there are only two ways to be guilty before God, sin nature and idolatry. But I want to emphasize that sin isn't just law-breaking. It's deeper and greater than that. Than just it's greater and bigger than just breaking an external rule. Sin involves who, what, and how we worship, or in other words, what we give weight to in our hearts. Romans 1.25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. If you worship anything but God, you are serving a created thing. Job, money, sex, family, control, approval, anything. The reason why I'm explaining our brokenness and guiltiness before God is if you don't realize your unrighteousness before a holy God, then you don't see a need to be rescued by this holy God. Mark 2, 17, Jesus said, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I, Jesus, came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you have no need to be reconciled to God, well, you have, you have no need to be reconciled to God if you don't think you are separated from him. Point number three, what isn't righteousness? In this section, much of the material uh, has been influenced by Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God, has changed my life. God has used it to change my life, so I recommend that book to you. So you will see a few quotes by the author, Tim Keller. Let's, I'm going to read the parable again, Luke 15. I'm going to start in verse 1 and 2, the preamble, where Jesus introduces the parables, and then jump down to the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods, that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate." For the son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fan calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed you, never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fan calf for him. And he said to him, Son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What is this parable normally called? The parable of prodigal son. What does prodigal mean? Wayward, people might say, right? He's the son that went wayward. Actually, it means lavish, reckless spending. How does Jesus introduce the parable in verse 11? It says, there was a man who had two sons. Does Jesus stop the parable after the prodigal son comes home? No. After verse 24, who becomes the focus of the parable? The older son, the elder son. So this parable can be split into Act 1, the younger brother, and Act 2, the elder brother, from Tim Keller. Most reading this parable have concentrated on the flight and return of the younger brother, the prodigal son. That misses the real message of the story, however, because there are two brothers. Each of them represents a different way to be alienated from God a different way to seek acceptance into the kingdom of heaven. So if each brother is alienated from God in his own way, then the parable should be called the parable of the lost sons. If you consider the elder brother in this parable, look at verse 1 and 2, chapter 15. Who is Jesus sharing this parable with, or these three parables with? Task collectors? Sinners, Pharisees, and scribes. So the tax collectors and the sinners are like the younger brother, the immoral outsider. And the Pharisees and the scribes are like the elder brother, the moral insider. Verse 3, so he told them this parable. What was the reason for the parable? Look at verse 2. Jesus shares these parables because it is in response to the Pharisees grumbling. So with that context, I would say the parable of the prodigal son has a special focus on actually the elder brother. Which brother is the bad one? On paper, it's the younger one, (laughs) right? Why? Because of his reckless living in verse 13. Which brother is the good one? The elder brother, why? Because in his words in verse 29, he served the father and never disobeyed him. Sounds like a Pharisee to me. The conclusion of the parable is not, don't be like the younger brother, be like the elder brother. The point is, they both show you how to push God away. Even good actions can do this. Even good actions can can push away God. We understand why the younger brother was lost because of his many sins, but how is the elder brother lost even though he was obedient? Hmm. Verse 28. The father invited him into the feast, but he refused to go in. From Tim Keller. Jesus ends the story with the elder brother in his alienated state. The bad son, the younger one, enters the father's feast. The good son will not. The lover of prostitutes is saved 
while the moral rectitude is still lost. Does that surprise you? It shocked the Pharisees. Let's compare verse 12 and 29. Verse 12 of chapter 15. And the younger brother and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Verse 29. This is the older elder brother talking. And he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Just like the younger brother, the elder brother wanted the father's wealth. The difference is the elder brother tried to get it from the inside by being good. The elder brother felt that he deserved the father's wealth because of his obedience. From Tim Keller, it was not his sins, but his righteousness that keeps him from the father. You can rebel and be alienated from God either by breaking the rules or by keeping the rules. Does that sound weird to anybody? Which is worse, to be alienated from God by breaking the rules or by keeping the rules? Which one is worse? Keeping? The younger brother's alienation is obvious. He left the father literally, physically, and morally. The elder brother, who stayed close, is more alienated from the father because he is blind to his condition. How is he blinded? Why doesn't he see his alienation from God? It's because he thinks he's doing okay because of his obedience. He doesn't realize his focus is on his obedience instead of God himself. From Tim Keller. Neither son loved the father for himself. Both were using the father instead of enjoying him. How would you know if you are an elder brother? Being an elder brother is a more spiritually desperate condition. How dare you say that is how religious people respond if you suggest the relationship with God isn't right. I'm there every time the church doors are open. Jesus says, in effect, that doesn't matter. They base their spiritual maturity or righteousness on their external obedience instead of their closeness to Christ. Jesus cares more about where you are with him rather than how many things you do for him. Remember, it was the obedient elder brother who refused to go to the feast. This is not a story about how the reckless spent, this is not only a story about the reckless spending of the younger brother, but about the reckless grace of the father. Both sons, who have alienated themselves from the father and disgraced him, were invited to the feast as a gift. The invitation to the feast is a beautiful gift, but the greater gift is a right relationship with the father. The elder brother will hopefully learn that a right relationship with the Father is not achieved by obedience or works. And this is what many people think. If I obey God, God will accept me. In other words, if I'm a good person, God will take me to heaven when I die. That is not how people are reconciled to God. 
we must be reconciled to God according to his terms, not based on what we think. Point number four, what kind of righteousness is God wanting from us? The parable of the two lost sons demonstrates that people are not reconciled to God by their own goodness and righteousness. The unrighteousness of the younger brother separated him from the father, as did the elder brother's obedient acts of self-righteousness. God is the judge. We must come to him on his terms. In order to be right with him, he requires perfection because he is a perfect God. We know that our own goodness is not good enough to him, but we still think we can earn his favor by doing good things. That's a human default. Being an elder brother does not bring you to the Father. So the question is, where is the hope for unrighteous people whose best efforts, a.k.a. their own righteousness, does not reconcile them to God? By the grace of God, there is a way. There is hope. Let's turn to Romans 10, 1 through 4. This was the verse on the bulletin today. Romans 10, 1 through 4. In the words of the Apostle Paul, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. From being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, right, elder brother, behavior, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In order to arrive at God, we need a righteousness outside of ourselves. We need God's righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ. Even the best version of man's righteousness from the other brother or the Pharisees won't reconcile you with God because you're trying to establish your own righteousness. Galatians 2.21 I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could earn your way into a right relationship with God, then why did Christ go to the cross? If he went to the cross because you cannot save yourself, he is the Savior, not you, not me. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. Albert actually read this verse earlier. Indeed, I count everything as lost, as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here it is. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Truth is, God's righteousness, the righteousness we need, does not come from the law. It cannot be earned, achieved, or worked for. That's what a lot of world religions preach. 
Earn your way to God. Do your best. God will weigh out your bad from the good. It doesn't work that way. You will not be accepted by God based on your obedience. You will only be accepted by God based on Christ's obedience on your behalf that is received by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You see a recurring pattern here? It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Reconciliation with God is a gift. That means we need God to give us his righteousness to us so that we can be reconciled to him. Point number five. How do we attain this righteousness? Using Abraham as an example, righteousness before God is a gift that is received, not a wage that is worked for. Let's turn to Romans 4, 1 through 5. Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified, right, declared righteous... By works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as as righteousness. Remember that to be justified is a legal term, which means to be declared righteous. After you die, you will stand before God as judge, and you will, he will either declare you to be right with him or to be separated from him from all eternity. That's why this topic is so important. If Abraham was declared righteous before God based on works, based on what he did or didn't do, then he could boast, look how good I am, God. Abraham was not justified based on his own righteousness. He was justified because a righteousness was counted or credited to him. To count or credit something is a financial term. In other words, God gave Abraham a righteousness that he did not work for. This is unlike a wage that is earned. The Apostle Paul, the human author of this passage, gives a a comparison of two people. The worker and the believer. So in the worker analogy, the person works, therefore the boss credits a wage to his account because it is owed to the worker. It is a due. It is a debt. Now the believer, he believes in him, and the verse says, who justifies the ungodly, Therefore, God credits his righteousness to your account because it is a gift, a gift of grace. In both scenarios, the person receiving receives something that is external of him and his account was credited. The wage does not come from inside the worker and the righteousness does not come from inside the believer, both from the outside. 
The major difference is the worker earns his wage, but the believer does not work for the gift. He merely responds to the gift which God gives. So you might ask, well, is the act of believing a work? If I gave you a million dollars, would you say you were rich because you worked for it? No. You would say you were rich because I gave it to you. The credit or glory goes to the giver, not the recipient. All you did was receive or respond to the gift. Salvation is not a job. Salvation cannot be earned. Salvation is 100% a gift of God's righteousness, which he credits to your account because of what Jesus did. John Piper, in his book, Counted as Righteousness, shares an analogy using his son's dirty room to explain how God credits righteousness to our account by grace. Suppose I say to Barnabas, my teenage son, clean up your room before you go to school. Sound familiar? You must have a clean room or you won't be able to go watch the game tonight. Suppose he plans poorly and leaves for school without cleaning the room. And suppose I discover the messy room and I clean it. His afternoon fills up. He gets home just before it's time to leave for the game. And he realizes what he has done and he feels terrible. He apologizes and humbly accepts the consequences. No game. To which I say, Barnabas, I'm going to credit the clean room to your account because of your apology and submission. Before you left for school this morning, I said, you must have a clean room or you won't be able to watch the game tonight. Well, your room is clean, so you can go to the game. What I mean when I say I credit his apology for a clean room, it's not that he's, he really cleaned the, the room. I cleaned it. It was pure grace. All I mean is that in my way of crediting my grace, his apology connects him with the promise given for a clean room. The clean room is now his clean room. So you see, the son receives the benefit as if he cleaned the room, even though his dad did the work. So let's review the first few points thus far. We are unrighteous before God, and our best efforts of righteousness will not reconcile us to him, so we need his righteousness given to us. So how is God's righteousness made available to us? God the Son took on flesh and became a man named Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned in thought, word, deed, motive, and attitude. He always kept the Father as his highest priority for all 30 years of his life on earth. He truly lived perfect righteousness. And that's why Christ didn't go from heaven straight to the cross. He had to live the perfect life so that we can receive that righteousness. He died on the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus did the heavy lifting for us. He did the work even though we should pay the penalty for our sins. An exchange, a transaction happened on the cross so that people would have an opportunity to be reconciled to God, the Father, through God the Son. 
2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We've been talking about credits and counting. The theological word is uh, imputation or imputed righteousness. But it actually happens three times in the Bible. It happens first when Adam's sin is credited to all mankind. We saw that earlier. The second, a third event happened on the cross. The Father, Father credits the sins of mankind on Jesus, the righteous one. And then Jesus credits the righteous of God to believers so that they go from an unrighteous standing with God the Father to a righteous standing with him. In 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus took upon sin upon himself and he died the death that we deserved. By experiencing the wrath of God, he died as if he committed those sins. Our sin was credited to him so that his righteousness could be credited to us, to those who receive what he has done. The forgiveness of sins and The righteousness of Christ is received when we repent of our sin and trust Christ to be our only hope to be reconciled to God. Nothing that we have done, we completely rely on what he has done by grace. This grace, this gift is received by faith, by trusting Christ to be your righteousness before the Father and for him to be the Lord of your entire life. That means to turn away from your lifestyle of sin And Jesus becomes your master and your king. If you have not trusted Jesus to be your righteousness, please go to God today in prayer. Repent of your sin, believe the gospel, and confess Jesus as your savior and king. Point number six. So what changes because of this righteousness? If you are a believer and father of Christ, You have been given the righteousness of God. I'll say that again. If you are a believer and follower of Christ, you have been given the righteousness of God. This means that you are counted righteous before God. You are not guilty as your sins deserve. Rather, you are accepted as Jesus deserved. In other words, If you have Christ as your righteousness, you are as accepted to the Father as Jesus himself is. I'll say that again. If Christ is your righteousness, you are as accepted before the Father as Jesus himself is. That's amazing. (laughs) So when you die and stand before God, you will be accepted, not based on your obedience, but based on the obedience of Jesus credited to your account. That is why the gospel is called good news. So with Jesus as your only basis for right standing before the Father, 
here's a few things that happen as a result. One, you have peace with God. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, there is no condemnation. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And thirdly, you have a genuine and secure hope. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to inherit to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Do you see how good and kind God is? That's why we, we keep going back to the gospel. One, we forget. And two, in the gospel, we see how good God is, and that causes us to want to live for him more versus just kind of trying to be motivated on your own. It's the gospel that does that. So number seven, how do we live in light of this righteousness? Well, there are three applications. One, having the gift of Christ's righteousness does not give us a reason to sin. A comment that is often thought or said, if I'm forgiven or been declared righteous before God, then I might as well do whatever I want. Isn't his grace greater than my sin? When God saves a person and adopts him into his family, that person is given a new heart with new desires. In addition, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the believer. Before, you used to enjoy your lifestyle of sin. Now, you don't enjoy the sin as you did before. Your new heart now wants to worship and be about your Savior. As a result, a true believer and follower of Christ will grow in personal holiness. Not that believers will never struggle with sin, but that the long-term pattern of your life would reflect Christ. I understand that believers still live in a tension of declared righteous, but yet not yet made righteous, which will happen when we stand before him in his presence. Number two, having the gift of Christ's righteousness helps us to not have to seek approval or acceptance from others. Now I realize wanting to be liked or accepted by others is a deep desire for most of us. It's a good thing to want to be pleasing or respected or delightful to those we care about. The problem is, when we seek their acceptance more than anything else, that makes it an idol, which makes it a bad thing. Knowing and believing the truth that believers have, the righteousness of Christ frees us from needing acceptance from others because we have the acceptance from the one who matters the most. Now, I realize that's easier said than done, but that's how the gospel, right, 
affects our daily life. We use the gospel as a platform to not have to seek approval from others. Number three, having the gift of Christ's righteousness should motivate us to obey him. As believers, we obey from our acceptance, not for our acceptance. Because we're saved by grace and not by works, we don't have to wonder, how am I doing, God, with you? Do you still accept me? Yes, he accepts you. Knowing that you are in his family and that is secure frees us to want to obey him. Obedience as a Christian is not an obligation or a way to get his inheritance. It's a joy because we, all, we are already an heir in Christ. So my prayer is that the gospel will bring you great joy in your daily life and be the motivation to live for him in a way that brings him great joy. Let's pray. Father, all I can say right now is thank you. I don't know what else to say, Lord. It's amazing to think and to know that in Christ, with his righteousness, you accept me to the same level as you accept Christ. Lord, may that truth change us. May that truth give us an awe of you and a wonder in the gospel. We need this, Lord, every day. We need this reminder. So Holy Spirit, please help us not to forget. Help us to live in a way that honors you, that's motivated by the good news, not by our own efforts. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of righteousness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for being so good to us. We love you. Jesus, name I pray. Amen.